0: Our scripture text this morning is John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. I think it's a self evident truth that um, if something loses its meaning, it loses its value. If something loses its meaning, it tends to lose its value. So for example, like the holidays, so you have Memorial Day, we have that last Monday in May off, and it is a day given to us as a day to reflect on those men and women who have given of their lives uh, to preserve the rights and the freedoms that we have in this country, and yet very few people think about it. It's just a three-day weekend. It, you know, you lose the meaning of that day and it loses its value. Same thing with Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving it was a day given to us to at least to remind ourselves of the greatness of God and his provisions for us in this year. And it's a four-day weekend with food and feasting and fun and, and all that's fine. But, but we, we lose the meaning of that it's really a reflection of our gratefulness to God. And losing the meaning means we lose the value of that day, see the same thing in Christmas. Now, Christmas—the meaning of Christmas—is that God has given to us a Son, through whom He will reconcile all things to Himself, all things, through His life and His death and His resurrection. And for many people, Christmas is just a day of cheer, giving gifts, a holiday, uh, kind of not working. To, to lose the meaning of the day means that we lose the value of it. We don't appreciate it. We don't enjoy it. Well, Advent has long been practiced by the church, uh, these four weeks before Christmas, a- as a way to restore the meaning of Christmas to us. We've gone through the whole year. We've gone through difficulties, hardships, or, or great things, and, and progress, and success. And we've forgotten many of the things that we need to be reminded of. And so Advent, it just comes from a Latin. It comes from an English word to arrive or to come. And it's the celebration of God bringing forth a son uh, to save us. And so we're going to look at the Gospel of John, chapter 1, over four weeks. I want to restore the meaning of what it means to consider Christ and him coming in the flesh. So we'll look at each section. Now, John's gospel is interesting in that there's a clear purpose that he wrote it. And you'll find this in chapter 20. You don't need to go there. I'll read it for you. But in chapter 20, we read, These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So John is writing his gospel so that you and I would hear, understand, we'd be introduced, and we would believe in Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah sent from God to save, and that in believing, we would have then life to the full, life marked by joy, not without troubles, but with the satisfaction and the happiness that God is sovereign over all. And so John wants to introduce us. Remember, the Gospels are just narratives. They're really a story of the life and ministry of Jesus. And John's keen to introduce us to this Jesus. So at the beginning of his Gospel, this is who Jesus is to us. But what's interesting is when we go back and learn about Jesus, he doesn't go back to his birth. Matthew and Luke do. There's birth narratives. You know, this is where Jesus was born, and this was the situation in which he was born. He didn't do that. He goes back to creation to introduce us to Jesus. You're going to find in this chapter, there is a profound nature of Jesus that is heavy with meaning and value. And yet it's simple to understand. Gregory the Great was a church saint back in the 6th century. And he said the Bible, and he referring, I would apply it to John, Uh, The Bible is like a river. It's a river in which a lamb can walk across, but an elephant can swim. It's deep, it's profound, and yet there's a simplicity to it that a child can understand. So three things I want to walk away with today. Number one is going to be that Jesus is the eternal word. And Keith just gave us a great theology of the word in his prayer. That Jesus is the eternal word, number one. Number two, Jesus is the creative word. You're going to see that in verse three. Jesus is a creative word. And then four, or sorry, three. That's where I got out of accounting. Uh, Number three would be that Jesus is the saving word. He's the saving word. And you see that in verses four and five. So first, Jesus is the eternal Word. Look back with me again at verses 1 and 2. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now, now notice, he says, in the beginning. So, so John is wanting our minds to drift back to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John wants us to see that this identification, Jesus, Jesus, goes back to creation, in the beginning was the word. Now John's saying that at creation, Jesus was, was. Notice the past tense. The past tense is to indicate that he wasn't part of creation. He wasn't created. He was was there before creation. So before time and space existed, Jesus Christ was there. He was there. But notice, it's in the beginning was the word. Why refer to Jesus as the word? You know, you could have referred to him as the Christ or the son of God or the son of man or the redeemer, the Messiah. That's what Jesus, those are going to be some of the names that he has throughout the gospel. But why the word? Well, some think that, you know, John is appealing to his Greek audience and his Greek audience would have heard the word or logos as kind of the controlling function of all existence. I think, I think John is wanting us to go back to the Old Testament. Because in the Old Testament, in the very beginning, God expresses himself through his words, just like we do. We talk about ourselves. We explain ourselves. We reveal ourselves through our words. God expresses himself. He reveals himself. He creates. He sustains. He delivers. How? Through his word. God is a speaking God. Justin Taylor wrote these words. He said, what do words have to do with Christianity? Almost everything. At every stage in redemptive history from the time before time to God's creation, to man's fall, to redemption, to the coming consummation. God is there and he's not silent. God's words decisively create, confront convict, correct and comfort. By his words, he both interprets and instructs. So God is doing a great work through his word, referring to Jesus as the word means that Jesus is that perfect disclosure of God. Jesus has come to reveal God to us. Now you say, why do I keep talking about Jesus as the word? Well, if you just look down in your text, in verse 14, it says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the one and only, full of grace and truth. So John is saying that Jesus is the one who has come from God to reveal God to us. I mean, think about in John 1.18. John 1:18 is an incredible if you just let your eyes go down there he says that no one has seen god and then he says the only god who was with the father has come to explain him who's that that's jesus that's the word made flesh so so jesus has come to disclose we see this in the book of hebrews in chapter 1 verse 1 He says, in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son. So Jesus is a person. He's made flesh, and yet he's the word. He's the full disclosure. That's why I said to Philip, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So Jesus has come among us as the word to disclose, to reveal the very Father to us. But notice it says that in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. This is hugely important. He's with God. Literally in Greek, he's face to face with God. He's distinct from God and yet he's identical with God. it's It's as if the word faced God so you, you see this in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. You see this beautiful relationship of love and intimacy and fellowship. You see the seeds of the Trinity here, distinct and yet the same. Notice he says, and the word was God. There's no article in that sentence. And by that, a, a Perhaps a Muslim or a Jehovah Witness might want to come up and say, well, there's no article there, so you should translate translate that that Jesus was a God. Not so. No, it's saying Jesus was God, or literally in Greek, God was the word. So, So Jesus is fully divine, fully, all the attributes of the Godhead apply to Jesus. Jesus, like the Spirit, though distinct, is equal in substance, glory, power, qualities, These are incredible truths. He's the eternal word. Before all things existed, he was. He was with God, distinct and yet equal, fully God. You know, children will often ask, well, who made God? Right? I mean, the the classic question. What was before God? And this is exactly what makes God God, is he has no beginning, he has no end. He's made all things. He was not created. You know, Christmas reminds us of the incredible nature of Christianity. Do you realize that no other religion in the history of humanity has anything parallel to this fully God, fully man in a complex triune relationship? It's also the doctrine that is often attacked the most, from Arius of the fourth century all the way to the Jehovah's Witnesses today. This is a unique doctrine. But don't let me, I don't want you thinking, this is ivory tower doctrine stuff. Not so. This is immensely practical. Because here's why. If Jesus is not fully God and fully man, then he's not a perfect substitute for us and we're in a heap of trouble. He's got to be fully God so as to be able to reconcile sinful man to God. Some other little God or some other partial God could not bring about the reconciliation that a perfect and holy God demands. But he has to be fully man to be able to identify with us, to take upon himself our sin. So, So for him, this is essential truth. John is saying, the Jesus that's coming among you in the flesh, he was before all things, equal to God, coming to save. But also this Christmas ought to comfort us. You know, while we identify with Jesus as a human, and we appreciate the fact that he's like us. I'm thankful he's fully, fully God. Think about the gravity of that. Think about that the one who has come to save you, the one who has come to give, remember, life. That through believing you may have life, that he's come to give life. That the one who has come to give life is fully God before all things. And no threat has all knowledge, has all capacities, fully self-sufficient in every way, self-existent, needs no help, needs no counsel. He exists in glory, and he's come to save us. Now, friends, this is like ballast in a boat. This is like the, the weight in the keel of a sailboat when the winds blow and the, and the surface turbulent. The boat won't go over because of the weight in that ballast. In fact, Basil was a fourth century church father, and he said these words. He says, beginning and was, beginning and was. In other words, defining him as coming, as existing before. He says, they're like two anchors which the ship of a man's soul may safely ride at. To know that he always has been, to know that he's fully glorious are two anchors that can stabilize us in a difficult life. Friends, Christmas is a time of wonder. And we are a people who know how to wonder. We know how to be amazed. I and mean, We know how to be impressed. We do. I mean, you see it on the beach all the time. By God's grace, we've often been able to go to the beach each year. And I, I love to walk on the beach before the sun rises. And you see people out there. They're walking. They're talking. They're walking their dogs. And then you see the sun begin to break the, the horizon over the ocean. And you know what happens? They'll stop. Everybody, they stop walking, they just look. Uh, they stop talking, they stop walking. And, and it's just the sun happens every day. But there's something amazing about seeing that sun rise. Creation is declaring the glory of God. And we stop in amazement. Now consider that Jesus has come eternally existent full of glory. Folks, if this doesn't cause wonder in our souls, if, if this doesn't cause you to be overwhelmed, then we might need to ask, do we know this Jesus? I mean, do we know him really? I mean, have we so domesticated him? Have we so humanized him that we've kind of taken this out of the mix and we've forgotten Jesus isn't this this humble carpenter who's come to say, he is that. But don't lose that in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. We don't want to miss that. So so he is the eternal word. Secondly, notice he's the creative word. Look with me at verse 3. He says, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. You see the, the incredible intricacy of how John is trying to show Jesus made all things. All things owe their existence. There was nothing made that was made that wasn't made by him. He's outside of creation. He's not part of creation. He's outside creating all things. He is the agency through which God created. You, think about the power of this. You know, in Genesis 1, where it says, and God said, let there be light. There's light. That's creation ex nihilo. Out of nothing, God just speaks and it's formed. Jesus is the one through whom he's creating all things. So all things, you, me, we all owe our existence right now to Christ. All of creation has been stamped with Christ. All of creation has just been stamped with Christ. This is why Paul writes these amazing words to the church the Colossian church he says for by him all things were created in heaven and earth visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities all things were created through him and for him and he is before all things and in him all things hold together everything is related to Christ all of creation declares Christ all of creation has been made by Christ touched by Christ It's all gloriously displaying and revealing Christ. All things. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity writes, Among these Jews there suddenly turns up a man who goes about talking as if he's God. He claims to forgive sins. He says he's always existed. He says he's coming to judge the world at the end of time. And now let us get this clear. Anyone might say that he was part of God or one with God. There would be nothing very odd about it. But this man, since he was a Jew, could not mean that kind of God. God in their language meant the being, meant that God was a being outside of the world who made it and was infinitely different from anything else. And when you have grasped that, you'll see that what this man said was, quite simply, the most shocking thing that has ever been uttered by human lips. To say that he is the creator of all things, that all things have been created through him and by him and for him. That's amazing. Nobody can say that. Everything here that we see, that we feel, that we touch, it's all been created, but he stands outside of it. This is the Jesus that has come to to us. This is creation worships Christ. Uh, Creation longs for redemption for Christ. Creation isn't some impersonal, blind, random, processed event that just happened. No, creation declares to us the glory of Christ. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim his handiwork. Day after day, he pours forth speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech. There are no words whose voice is not heard. The voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the, to the end of the world. So John the apostle is saying the creation in which you live is all declaring that they've come from, they exist. They're sustained because of this Jesus who is coming to us to save in the flesh, all of creation. We're amazed at the immensity of the universe. We've only in the last few hundred years really discovered the incredible glory of creation, uh, just the size of it, the complexity of it. But don't just go out to the ends of the universe, just look at yourself. You all have these individual DNA that makes you absolutely unique, one from the other. The precision And the microscopic detail of who you are, how a cell is formed, how the eye functions. We're amazingly made. I mean, you go to the end of the world, or you can look at yourself. And he has stamped himself upon all of us. How does it make you feel to know that you're created? You're not self-existent. You're not self-determined. You're not autonomous. You live and you move and you have your being in him. He gives you life. He's giving you life. He right now is sustaining your life. The breath you're drawing, the way your mind's work, he sustains all of life. Does this make you think differently of him? Does this cause you to think, he, he ought to have a different place in my life. He ought to have more significance does it, does it kind of shock you to think that you can go day after day after day and hardly give him a thought, even though he's giving you life moment by moment by moment? Maybe you're here and you think, I don't know if I believe all that. I mean, this God that creates me. And you, you want to hold to maybe more of a, well, I just think it all kind of just happened. Well, think about the illogic of that. Just for a minute with me. I'm not looking to pick a fight. But just think of the logic. And I want to read you from what one author wrote. He says, So, for billions of years, you say, with no creator, no intelligence, no design, no purpose, no plan, there emerges from a mindless, lifeless, random matter and energy, not only the irreducible complexities of interdependent biological structure, but also this very glorious thing called living personhood. Is that what you believe? So, so the two options that the irreducible complexities of the interdependent biological structure of our lives is going to come from a mindless, purposeless, no plan, and we're just going to be here. Friends, if that's what you hold on to, you are a man or woman of incredible faith. You're a believer. Your belief is just rooted in something that's philosophically untenable, that something is going to come from nothing, and chaos is going to produce order. There's nothing in this world that has any example that you can point to. It it leaves us in wonder that all things, you and I right now, we have been stamped by Christ. So he's come to us, not just as the eternal word, but as the creative word. But notice that he's also come as the saving word. And this is so glorious to see. Look at four and five with me. He says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. What does this mean? In him was life. So John is saying this Jesus, this Jesus who I'm, I'm writing these things now so that you might believe in this Jesus as the Christ. And I'm writing so that in believing, you will have life. So so John's goal is not just to convince us of some ideology or some theological concept. John wants us to have a full abundant life right now, a life that will exist in the glory of this Jesus. He says, in him is life. Now, I don't think he's speaking here about physical or biological life. He just said that in verse 3. I think he's speaking about something different. And I think the life that he's speaking about is explained in what follows. Notice again, look with me at the text. He says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. So the life of Christ, this life that he's coming to bring, is called the light of men. I think what he means by light is the knowledge That Jesus Christ is bringing the knowledge, not just of God Himself. We've already talked about that. Jesus has come to reveal the Father, right? He's come to to kind of disclose not just His glory and power, but remember, Jesus came to reveal to us that God is kind. He's merciful. He's long suffering. He's slow to anger. That That God is a kind Father, drawing back repentant sinners but he's also come to reveal us to ourselves friends he's come to reveal to us that we have a massive predicament we are a sea of contradictions we want to do great we fall into the abyss we want to we want to pursue godliness and we fall into godlessness we want to move beyond our selfishness and we just can't we can't seem to change our nature we are just stuck with ourselves Many of us struggle with just self-hatred because we can't seem to get out of our own way. We continue to do things that seem to be harmful to other people or say things or act in certain ways. Jesus has come to reveal to us the absolute human predicament we have apart from God. He is this light that shines into the darkness of our souls. That's what Jesus says in John chapter 8. He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Or he says in John 12, 46, I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me would not remain in darkness. This light and life, there are themes throughout the gospel of John, but they're creational themes. Do you remember all the way back in Genesis? It was dark and it was void. And God says, let there be light. Light into darkness Order comes out of chaos. Salvation comes out of formlessness. That's what Jesus is coming to do. Jesus is coming to recreate all things. That's why you have him refer to Genesis 1.1. He is coming as a, as a creator to make all things new. It's this light shining into darkness. That's why in the book of Isaiah, he says to a people, wandering in darkness, they've seen a great light. To a people dwelling in a land of death, a light has dawned. Jesus is the one that has come to give us life because we are a people in darkness. Now, you may ask, well, what do you mean darkness? And what do you mean death? Well, when the Bible speaks about death, it's not just biological death. It's not just the cessation of life. Listen, all of us here are headed for that. No one in this room will escape that right? We're all going to die. That's very, very clear. But I think he's speaking about more than that. He's talking about a spiritual darkness, a a darkness as in a, a, a lack of life with God. Oh, my body, we are physically animated, no doubt about it. But think about all the years we lived, or think about all the people that live. Day after day after day, They live a life given to them and sustained by them, uh, sustained for them by God. And they don't even even know that he exists. It's as if they're dead to God. This is a spiritual deadness. It's like going into a, you know, kind of a, a viewing at a funeral. And you see the body. Yeah, that's Joe. Yep, that's his body right there. But Joe's not there. The real Joe's not there. It's his body, but it's not Joe. And how many of us live day after day after day We don't even think about God. It's as if we're dead to him. And so this light shines into darkness to reveal to us. We try to live a life apart from God. What foolery. We try to pursue joy and satisfaction and peace through things or relationships or people or pleasures or experiences. And you know they all pass the next day. You got to eat again. You got to have another experience again. Nothing satisfies. I mean, you don't have to be 25 and know that. You know, the new car, the new relationship, the new job. You know, they, they just, they quickly they become old and just unsatisfying. It's only life with God that is satisfying and joy and abundant. And so here Jesus has come to be light that shines into our darkness, that we might have the light of life. There's a warning there. Well, before I get to the warning, this is John's language for what it means to be born again. Right to, to be born again, to come to an understanding of the greatness and the glory of God is to, you know, we have the same expression, right? I've seen the light. I've seen the light. You know, now I understand what has always been. But I did not grasp it. I didn't understand it. I've seen it. I get it. This is what Jesus has come to do, to be light shining into, into the darkness. So we, I, I heard my father say that. I get it. It's kitchen table. Four years before he died. I get it. I heard my brother say that. I've heard some of you say that. I remember Norma, back in Michigan, who shared the gospel repeatedly. And one day she goes, I get it. I get it. She saw it. She, she explained the gospel back to us. The, the light had shined into the darkness. Boom, she gets it. That's what Jesus has come to do, to redeem us, to save us. But there's the warning. Notice the warning. The light shines into the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. What's this mean? Well, that overcome is difficult to translate. At a minimum, it means, it can mean, that the darkness has not understood it. The darkness hasn't apprehended it. That light, the gospel, is being declared and people reject it. This is what we see in verses 9 and 10 in this chapter that we're reading. If your eyes go down, it says, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him or understand him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. The light comes in and the darkness doesn't understand it. He says later in chapter three, this is the judgment. Light has come into the world and the people love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. Oh, this is a threat. Do you see what he's saying here? That there's a conflict that light is opposing darkness. Darkness is opposing light. That when you preach the gospel, is it a surprise to you when people reject it? or mock it, or turn away from it. Uh, This is preparing us that light blasts in the darkness, and the darkness will not want to understand it. The human heart rejects this idea of wanting to submit to this Jesus coming to save. But I do want you to know that that overcome does mean that the darkness won't defeat it. That when the light shines in, it will be effective. It will be victorious. It will be glorious. We see this in Second Corinthians 4. Paul writes, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. But God said, let light shine out of darkness has shown into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. If you're here as a Christian, that light has shone into the darkness of your soul. Your eyes have been opened by his grace and you seek Christ for his glory. You place your faith in him and that's what it means to be a Christian. For those that still are opposing or failing to understand the light, they stand outside. They have no savior. Uh, Friends, uh, this text is a word of warning to us. What have we done with the light? What have you done? I've just given you knowledge of this Jesus, the eternal word, the creative word, the the saving word who has come What do you do with that? I mean, if you're here and you're not a Christian, uh, I appeal to you to consider this, to to put much thought to this. He who has the Son has life. He who has not the Son has not life. Uh, This is how. One is reconciled to God. This is how one has life and life to the full. Otherwise, I warn you, you have a lifetime of pursuit, and the carrot will always be moved just out of reach. You'll never, ever find a satisfaction that will endure all things. But for the believer here, this is our hope. This is a word of hope for us. I mean, he has come, he's come as the light. He's come as the eternal word. But but I'm calling you still to believe. This isn't something you do 20 years ago and you're good to go. No, notice what John says. These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life. We're to abide in this. We're to walk in this. We're to walk in this idea that he is making us new. We are being transformed from glory to glory through believing. So our belief is active. It's engaging right now. Every day, we're walking, reminding of ourselves of the glorious Christ, that we're believing in him. This is why I'm, I'm thankful that we have this, this table. This table helps to keep reminding us of the, of the nature of this light that has come into the world. Uh, let, let me just try to orient your minds for a moment to this table. You know, a lot of times you see the table, you see Jesus represented here in a body broken and blood shed. You, you grab the bread and, and you see the bread, the bread is broken and you're reminded that your sins have been broken that his body was broken because he bore your sins. And then you, you dip it into the cup to consume it, reminding that his blood was shed to bring forgiveness to you. And we can come up in different ways. Some of us can really be somber and feel the weight of our sin, and we feel so unworthy, and we feel like so undeserving because of the week that we've had. Others of us may come without giving little thought or just kind of just coming up, this is what we do the first Sunday of every month, and so this is, this is the first Sunday, so let's go do it. And let me just try to remind you that this table is for sinners, right? Jesus says, this body broken for you. It wasn't broken for him, it was broken for us, for sinners. And, and, and then Jesus says later, he says, this is the covenant, the blood of my covenant poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. This is a table for sinners. But let me remind you, uh, when you're coming up, uh, that you're invited by the one who sits at the head of this table to come forward to feast. That you're coming up forgiven. So here's what I want you to get in your mind. You think about the parable of the prodigal son. The prodigal son, remember, he's the younger son who says to his dad, hey, can you give me my inheritance now? And basically he's saying, it would be better off if you just died right now, and that way your assets would transfer to me and I can get on with my life. So so you can just imagine the absolute, uh, just the absolute inappropriateness of a son saying that to his father. And so the father graciously gives him his inheritance. And what's he do with it? He doesn't invest in it. he doesn't, doesn't you know, express any gratitude to the Father. He goes out to a far country and he eats and he drinks and he, he hangs around with women and parties all day long. And, and he, just, he just misuses everything the Father has given, all the gifts, all the money, all the wealth, all that. He just misuses it all. And then he ends up with nothing. And he's eating with the pigs. And he begins to realize, wow, my Father was a good man. And I, I've forgotten him. I've ignored him. I've lived my life apart from him and it says he comes to his senses and he returns and walking back of course then it says the father ran out to greet him so you know the father was looking and the father runs out to greet him and what does he do he throws a party or he gives him a ring he puts a robe on his back he calls all the friends he says hey my son was dead he's alive now let's celebrate let's party let's have a great feast can you imagine if that if that son that repentant sinner who came home If he sat in a corner and sulked about what an idiot he was, and and, and if he just just didn't enjoy the feast that was prepared for him, this is a feast for us. We can come to the table and rejoice that our forgiveness is true, it's objective, it's real. You're coming to the table with a bunch of other sinners that were just like you, and they've been invited just like you, and and it's a party. We ought to be amazed. We're forgiven. I mean, the, the... the, the, car, the freight cars behind you of stuff that he's forgiven? And he says, I've forgotten it as far as the east is from the west. Friends, we want to be absolutely aware of our brokenness. But we want to be equally aware of our gratefulness. Our gratefulness that this this... This eternal word, this creative word, this saving word has come, and he has delivered the man or the woman who has put their faith in his death, his life, his death, and his resurrection. And we want to be happy people, like we're going to the party. So can you imagine that young son when he comes in? That's the pitiful thing about the older brother outside, not not enjoying the feast. The young guy, he's got a robe on. He was eating with pigs. Now he's got a robe on. He had no money. Now he's got his father's ring on his finger. He was hungry, starving. Now he's got a table full of food. That's what we have as Christians. We've been forgiven. We're adopted. We've been reconciled. Oh, I don't know what else I can tell you to, to make it better for you. So let's just take a moment now and ask God. God, open our eyes to the glory of the feast. This is a foretaste of what is to come. So may we come to the table. May it be a, may it be a glorious dress rehearsal for us. And then I'll, I'll pray for us in just a moment. Father, we confess that we can be overjoyed by a a victory in sports, a promotion at work, a new relationship, increased health, bigger house. And yet when we come to this truth that you have sent your son to save us, to bring forgiveness, adoption, to assure us, to be present with you in your new heavens and new earth as he is making all things new. We find our hearts often unmoved. Father, give us your spirit to move us to be a people of incredible joy. Even today, even now, as we come to take the bread and to dip it and to eat it, that this is our participation, our forward look into that day. Change us even today, even now, Father, by your spirit. May you do it for your glory and for our joy, and I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.